Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's a busy evening in town tonight. Barman serving up whiskey to cowhands fresh home from the drive, pockets full of pay. The Undertaker's got paid, too. And they've got a bottle down there at the end of the bar. And there's those outlaws at the poker table ready to duck out the back. All of them crowding the place while the piano man pounds on his keys, accompanied by the jangle of boot spurs and the percussion of shot glasses pounding. Trail tales are told. Casey's horse got spooked by a rattler, landed him on the back of a bull who took none too kindly. Bo lost his boots on a wager and walked clear back to camp in cactus. Everyone's laughing in high spirits as drinks flow and music plays until... It's a newcomer in town, squinting his eyes, adjusting to the light. A man who doesn't belong, not in this room at least. Yet he sure seems to think he does. Spiteful eyes shoot darts. Others look down at the floor. The air is suddenly tense and seething. Looks like we're heading for trouble in town tonight. The confrontation here at the Showdown Saloon. Welcome, listeners, to American History Hit. I'm Don Wildman. Glad you're with us. On today's episode, we discuss a central element of the American West, a mythological character passed down through the ages or certainly through about a thousand movies and TV shows and dog-eared Louis L'Amour novels, that of the American cowboy and how the popular history of the Old West has twisted the facts about him, morphing the historic truths into an image much more useful and comfortable to the mass market. Of course, this is generally true of most Western tales and how they've been told, and we've been course-correcting for decades now as a culture. But the cowboy has mostly been excluded from this conversation, out there alone on his horse on the dusty plains of our collective memory. The true story of the American cowboy is so much more layered and interesting than what we've seen in John Wayne movies. A little later on, I'll be talking to historian Tony Warner about the depiction of black cowboys in film. But first, we're delving into the real history of the Wild West. Throughout the entire 19th century, before and after the Civil War, there was an extensive labor force relied upon to run the ranches and cattle drives and do all the things folks did out there on the plains. They were highly skilled at the work and all the adjacent trades, the gunslingers and lawmen, ropers, even eventually rodeo stars. So many of these figures without whom the West could never have been won. And these people were African-Americans. 
Black Cowboys. It's history finally being widely told, and we cover it today in the company of our expert guest, Dr. Roger Hardaway, professor of history at Northwestern Oklahoma State University, author of A Narrative Bibliography of the African-American Frontier, and co-editor of African Americans on the Western Frontier. Greetings, Professor Hardaway. Nice to have you. Hello, Roger. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be here. Roger, what we discussed today, some listeners will be learning about for the first time. Others know more. I read about it in the New York Times years ago. It's been on CBS Sunday morning. And yet half of what I saw and read prepping for today, I have never encountered before. The misconception of the American cowboy is so deeply baked into the story of the American West. How have we skipped over this until so recently? Yeah, well, the Western cattle industry really took off right after the Civil War. Historians refer to the heyday of the American cattle industry from 1866 to about 1890 or the late 1880s. The reason they call it the heyday is because you could round up all these cattle that were running loose. You had domesticated cattle who had gotten off the farms and ranches in Texas during the Civil War when all the young men were off fighting the war back east. And you had Texas Longhorns who had never belonged to anybody, and all you had to do was round them up and brand them, and they became yours. Mm. So the cattle business was very profitable. You had a lot of people investing in it from back east and from Europe who didn't know a thing about cattle. A lot of African Americans who were former enslaved people moved out to Texas to take advantage of these jobs that you mentioned that were created. There were over 30,000 cowboy jobs during that so-called heyday of the American cattle industry. And about a third of them, more or less, were African-Americans. As enslaved people back east, they had handled cattle. And now then they go out to the American West and they were usually living on ranches. Most of them were teenagers or in their early 20s, not married, didn't have a family. So they lived in a bunkhouse with the other cowboys. They got paid maybe $15 a month. They would go into town ever so often and spend some of that money and buy some clothes. But by and large, they were just, uh, as you mentioned, on isolated areas of the countryside, handling cattle all day, making sure they got fed, moving them from one pasture to another, helping during calving season. And then about twice a year, they would take them on a several hundred mile trip north to where the railroads were to take them to market. And the markets were places like Chicago and Omaha and a few other towns that had big slaughterhouse industries. But the history of the so-called working cowboy is something that has been kind of worked on by Western historians for 50 years or so. There was a book by a couple of UCLA English professors back in 1965, and they kind of unearthed a lot of this stuff that, as you mentioned, most people don't know about. Yeah, it's such a refreshing topic, really. I mean, when you think of black cowboys on horses, it's so much more refreshing, as they say, than sharecropping and cotton fields and so forth. But it was a gigantic part of life in Texas, wasn't it? You say a third of the population of cowboys, 30,000 cowboys, that's 10,000 black cowboys are at work in Texas. That must have become quite an ordinary factor of life. It was. It was a better job than most former enslaved people could get when you're a teenager or in your early 20s. Mm. Not only did you get maybe $15 a month, which was fairly typical, but room and board was taken care of. Yeah. And so you didn't have to cook, you didn't have to shop, you didn't have to do any of that stuff. It was all done on the ranch. 
the work was hard, but you got to work. And so you didn't have to put up with being prejudiced as if you lived in town. So living out on a ranch, the only thing they cared about was were you a hard worker. It's the great equalizer, isn't it? Right. You're referring to a few things that I want to nail down a little bit. Fascinating eras in this industry. It's kind of all fenced off with barbed wire, isn't it? You begin with these wide open spaces and then suddenly barbed wire comes along in the 1860s and 70s. And that kind of changes the entire Western frontier. It also has a lot to do with cowboying, doesn't it? Right. Well, for one thing, you have major cattle trails heading from South Texas north up to Kansas or Nebraska. And as homesteaders moved west from Missouri into eastern Kansas into eastern Nebraska, they fenced off their land. They wanted to keep cattle off of it that that didn't belong to them. Uh, And so you have these so-called fence wars that take place where cattlemen would cut fences. A lot of time a homesteader might homestead where there was a watering hole. And so the cattlemen have been driving their cattle north for several years using that water hole, and all of a sudden there's a barbed wire fence around it. Hmm. Eventually, there's so many homesteaders moving west that they start moving the cattle trails farther west. And so you go from the Sedalia Trail, was went from south Texas up through southeastern Oklahoma into Missouri, and then you had the famous Chisholm Trail that went straight north through Indian Territory. West of that, you had the Western Trail, and then eventually you have the Goodnight Loving Trail, and they head west from South Texas about 200 miles before they start going north. And they go north through eastern New Mexico, up through Colorado to Cheyenne, Wyoming. You do that to stay away from the homesteaders and to stay away from the barbed wire fences. But in doing that, when the cattle get on the train in Cheyenne, they have to travel a lot further than if they got on the train in Abilene, Kansas, or Wichita, Mm -hmm. or Omaha. And so the cost of getting the cattle to market went up because of homesteaders with their barbed wire fences. So much of what we're discussing happens in Texas, but this really goes on elsewhere in the West as well. But it's really Texas that kind of defines this whole subject matter, isn't it? Well, Texas is where it all started. Yeah. And Texas had been a slave state, so there were a lot of black cowboys there. Also, a lot of ex-enslaved people from other states went out to Texas to get involved in this because, again, you're looking for work. Now that you're no longer an enslaved person, you've got to have a job. And these are jobs that were open for young men who were in their teens and early 20s. Yeah. Cattle industry spread all over the American West, uh, Montana on up into Alberta and Canada, but you had cattle ranches all over the American West. How did that happen? I mean, it wasn't just inevitable that there would be grazing animals out there. How did that even occur? Well, first of all, again, you had those domesticated cattle that had wandered off farms and ranches, and you had all these longhorns that never belonged to anyone. Typically, you would have a land and cattle company formed by investors they would hire some ranch manager who would hire the cowboys and take care of the books and make sure that everything gets done. You would go to, say, the Illinois State Fair and buy a prize bull and bring it out, and then the calves belonged to the rancher too. So every time the cows had calves, the ranchers are getting richer, and they're feeding all these people back east. By 1900, New York City had over 3 million people. Philadelphia had over a million. These folks don't raise their own food. They have to go to the grocery store and the meat market to buy it. 
And this is before the big-time farms get made. And so the primary source for food is meat, and that's why there's such a demand for that supply. You know, throw in the railroads and the refrigerated cars, and you're off and running. How did the word cowboy originate? Well, one of the primary beliefs is because African-American slaves were referred to as boys, no matter how old they were, and they took care of the cattle on farms and ranches. In the movies, all the enslaved people are working on cotton plantations, and there's hundreds of them in the fields. A lot of enslaved people were on smaller farms. Mm -hmm. Even on large plantations, you had milk cows as well as gardens and things like that to help feed everybody. So they would often round up the cattle, bring them in to be milked. The cattle, of course, that they had were milk cows, and you weren't slaughtering them to eat so much as you were milking them and drinking the milk. But they knew how to handle cattle, and they were used to riding horses to help round them up. So it was just a natural extension of their what they had learned to become a cowboy out in Texas or some other part of the American West. I have read that it was common that white cowboys were called cowhands. Is that a truism or not? Well, it could be. I, I think every ranch would be different. Every rancher would be different. I think eventually the word cowboy lost any kind of discriminatory meaning it might have had up front. Yeah. The Civil War has a lot to do with this as well, uh, especially in Texas, as you say. That war comes along. It's a four or five years of people running off and joining the armies. White cowboys would be doing that in full measure, I suppose. At this time, there would have been a vacuum to be filled, and a lot of those jobs were covered by those black cowboys, right? Right. And then, of course, slavery is abolished at the end of the Civil War. Now they're free to go get a job and, and move where they want to. And one cowboy that I researched who wound up in Alberta by way of Idaho grew up in South Carolina. Well, I mean, a lot of people wanted to escape the old slave kingdom, and Texas was part of it too, but West Texas was kind of different from East Texas. And so the cattle industry was in South and Southwest Texas much more so. And again, once you went out there and you were with a few other teenagers or people in their early 20s, and they were all single and they were all working on this ranch, it was just a matter of doing the work. And you didn't care who was next to you as long as they could do the job. But discrimination must have been rampant nonetheless, especially on those cattle drives, right? Not so much. Oh, really? When you got to the cow towns, now that was true. You always had confrontations in bars. A lot of the brothels would not allow black cowboys to attend. There's many, many stories of people being in a bar and maybe having a little bit too much to drink and then say something smart to some African-American cowboy, but also his compadres would come to his defense because they, you were picking on one of their their own, yeah. Their core team members, yeah. Right. There's so many incredibly famous stories, really. Tell me about Nat Love. Man wrote his autobiography in about 1907, so he had been through all those decades before. Right. Born into slavery in Tennessee, becomes one of the most talented ranch hands ever, also known as Deadwood Dick. Yeah. Well, he, he was also quite a self-promoter. <laughs> I see. In reading his book, he'll escape numerous Native Americans who are attacking him and, you know, just by his wiles and his abilities escape. He wound up actually being a bank security guard in Los Angeles. You know, what do you do when you're an old cowboy? You know, got to get a job. And another one named Jim Beckworth wound up being a clerk in a store in Denver. 
and Nat Love wound up being a bank security guard in Los Angeles. But there are all these famous pictures of him. He went to a studio and all these pictures of him are made the same day, obviously. One of them, he's got a rope in his hand. Another one, he's got a rifle that he's standing up holding out and has a saddle on the ground by him. He was very flamboyant. They'd like to give himself these names. <laughs> and you'd have a lot of times small town or sometimes on the ranch, you would have a kind of a contest of skill. And so people who would win those things would brag about it. You know, yeah. there were all these people who claimed to be world champion bull riders because they'd won one bull riding on Sunday afternoon on a little ranch. Yeah. He went to South Dakota and showed off his skills and got semi-famous, but writing his book was what made him really famous. There's a lot of that. And then the movies are basically adapting all of those and frequently substituting white cowboy figures for those black men. You're bumping up against the subject I was going to talk about later, but let's let's get to it now. Black rodeos. Right. Black rodeos develop out of this kind of tradition you're talking about, you know, showing off your skills, winning some money, I'm sure. This would have been a, a way to pass the time, definitely. But there were some very famous black cowboys who took part in that and developed it. Right. Well, Bill Pickett is the one that everybody points to as kind of a transition figure from working cowboys to rodeo stars. One of the things that happened as the West was settled and Native Americans were defeated in battle and put on reservations, you had the uh, Wild West shows getting started. And Buffalo Bill Cody had a famous Wild West show, but there were several others. And they would hire cowboys to put on shows, and they would do them in places like Madison Square Garden in New York City. They'd go to London, England, and go to Mexico City. The Wild West shows always had trick riders and then you'd have shootouts where the Native Americans would be shot and the cavalry would come riding in at the last minute and save them. And in between those spectacular phony baloney entertainment episodes, they would have some roping and wrestling of cattle. Bill Pickett is given credit for inventing steer wrestling, mm. one of the premier rodeo events today. As time passed, Wild West shows became less popular and rodeo became more popular. And you had more and more spectators wanting to see skilled cowboys wrestling cattle, roping cattle, riding bucking bronx, riding bulls, and fewer people doing cheesy entertainment stuff. But if you go to a rodeo today, there's always a contract act that they hire to come in and do a little bit of that. So instead of having a lot of Wild West show with a little rodeo, which is what you had in the late 19th century, today you have a lot of rodeo with a little bit of a Wild West show mixed in. Interesting, yeah. Right. Let's talk about how the image was recreated in American Westerns. Mm -hmm. You know, it starts all the way back in the silent era. Tom Mix was my mother's favorite character when she was young, you know, these singing cowboys, right. they sort of homogenized this idea and made it a mass market figure and also always a white man, John Wayne being the top of the heap there. At the same time, there is a circuit of black films, and you can see these circulating throughout the American South, what was called the Chitlin Circuit was the whole thing. And so underneath the surface, there's always this truer version of black cowboy going on. Well, the most famous black director during the silent era was a guy named Oscar Michoud, and he 
wrote two or three novels, and then he wrote the screenplay for his movies, and they were cheaply made because he didn't have very much money. He would get in the car and drive around and drop off these copies of the movie at these black-owned movie theaters because mm-hmm. you couldn't get them shown in the white-owned theaters. The only people who'd want to watch them would be African-Americans. But one of his novels was called The Homesteader. And so he actually moved out to South Dakota and tried to become a farmer, rancher. And if you don't have any money to buy farm equipment and livestock, you're not going to be very successful. And he wasn't. But he came up with all these storylines and kind of modified them and made these other movies. When you get into talking movies, you had a guy named Herb Jeffries made five all-black cast westerns. So where the cowboy could be a sheriff or the cowboy could be a hero. In the white movies, you had anybody who was a minority would be comic relief, more likely, or, or some very minor character who was not a hero. And so the general public out there never dreamed that a black cowboy could be very talented, for example, or for that matter, a Mexican cowboy, which there were a lot of those too in Texas. So in the beginning of rodeo, you oftentimes had black cowboys had a hard time entering. If it was a rodeo put on by white folks and most of the spectators be white, they might allow you to enter. But a lot of times you'd have to rope when uh, everybody else has gone home. Yeah. In order to have a rodeo last a couple of hours and not be boring, if you have 50 calf ropers who want to rope, you only let about eight or 10 of them rope in front of the spectators. And the other ones rope tomorrow morning or later tonight, and they can make money. They may win the rodeo, and the fans have already gone home. So a lot of times they wouldn't let the black cowboys participate in the rodeo in front of the fans, but if they paid their entry fee, they could participate in rodeo when nobody was watching. I see, interesting. Uh, Roger, let's talk about Bass Reeves. Born into slavery, becomes a leading figure in frontier law. Uh, Give me more about his biography. Well, you've probably heard of Judge Parker, who uh, was the so-called hanging judge. Isaac Parker was his name. He was a former member of Congress from Missouri, but he got appointed to be a federal judge over Arkansas and Indian Territory. And most of his cases in front of him were from Indian Territory because Arkansas became a state in 1836. And so you had most of the crimes were tried in state court. Bass Reeves, along with several other people, were hired as deputy U.S. Marshals to work out of Isaac Parker's court, which was in Fort Smith, Arkansas, in the western part of the state. Reeves became the most famous of them. He couldn't read and write because when you're a slave, you're not allowed to go to school. Mm -hmm. But he would uh, have all these warrants for people's arrest, and he would memorize them. Somebody would tell him who this one is, and the one on top is for so-and-so, and and the third one down is for somebody else. And so he was very good at remembering that and arresting people, and he became quite famous for that. Now, you kind of get toward you blur the lines between a cowboy and somebody who he, he was very good at riding horses and shooting. Is he a cowboy? I mean, he's a law enforcement official. Yeah. And he did that for years. And he actually lost his job 
when Oklahoma became a state in 1907 because you didn't have federal courts, didn't have jurisdiction anymore. Sure, yeah. Well, it's speculated that he was the model for the Lone Ranger, right? Well, there's that theory, but I don't think most historians don't buy into that. But there's a, a guy who wrote a book about him who likes to play that up. <laughs> but most people don't believe it. But he certainly was a heroic figure. Yeah. And, you know, you could create a fictional character around him. He becomes the most famous of all these black lawmen. But there were, there were over 20 of them that worked out of uh, Judge Parker's court. But some of them lasted for a few years, and Bass Reeves worked for many years. Yeah, I just like the idea of a, of a fictional white lawman who's wearing a black mask. <laughs> it works out quite nicely. Larry McMurtry's book, Lonesome Dog, loved that book back in the day. Has a character of Josh Dietz, ex-enslaved cowhand. He's based on Bose Icart, the, the trusted cowhand for Charles Goodnight, who created, basically, you know, started the Texas cattle industry. Eichhardt was his closest hand, right? Right. Well, again, the Goodnight Loving Trail, Oliver Loving and Charles Goodnight are the founders of that trail. It's the one that went west up to the Pecos River in eastern New Mexico. But he always said he, when he sold his cattle and he, or when he took money with him to pay the cowboys off or to pay the agent who was going to ride with the cattle on the train to Chicago, he would have several thousand dollars with him. He always put it on Bose's body. Because if anybody came into camp and tried to rob them, they would never dream that the black cowboy would be the one that had all the money. Yeah, but also spoke to the trust that he had in the man, for sure. Yeah, and he also said it in his autobiography that he was the most trusted hand he ever had. And now we have the Dallas Cowboy football team, <laughs> America's team. And the, the irony could not be thicker where so many of these legends, these incredible beloved football icons from Bob Hayes to Deion Sanders, Michael Irvin, all African-Americans distinguished for their service in an industry dominated by white team owners. Nobody thinks the cowboy was ever a racist term now. Right. Well, another little myth about black cowboys that I've seen written many, many times is that none of them were ever promoted to like ranch foreman to be in charge of white cowboys. Yeah. But in reading everything that's out there, I have found several that did become ranch foreman. So again, if the white rancher thought you were the best one for the job, that's all he cares about is getting the job done. And so you just tell the white cowboys, you have to answer to him. If you don't want to answer to him, you're going to answer to me, and you're going to wind up losing your job. So there were a few of those who did become ranchers. There was a guy named Henry Harris out in Nevada who had been born in a slave in Texas, and he worked for a guy named John Sparks, and Sparks moved to Nevada and took him with him, and Sparks wound up being the governor of Nevada, and Henry Harris was in charge of his ranch. Hmm for several years. There's a guy named George Majunkin who was a black cowboy up in uh, northern New Mexico, and uh, he became a ranch foreman as well. He's most famous for finding a bunch of buffalo bones in an arroyo where the water had unearthed them, and then taking them to Denver to a natural history museum to have them inspected. And he actually, as a result of that, eventually proved that People had been hunting buffalo and had spear points that they used to kill them several hundred years before anybody believed it before. So he was very important for that. But he also became a ranch foreman supervising white cowboys. 
I guess the moral of, of the story here is that uh, if your image of the American West and certainly the American cowboy comes from, you know, John Ford Westerns, alter that vision. You know, it was a much more racially integrated and uh, textured society that we're talking about here. It wasn't all peaches and cream, of course, but it was a, a much richer place than those Westerns were marketed for. Roger Hardaway, great to meet you. Thank you so much for your expertise. What on the wide open range of your career can we be looking forward to? Well, one thing is I've been working on black rodeo cowboys. I started out like most people did working on so-called working cowboys of the 19th century. And uh, there've been several of us who've worked in that field, fewer people working on black rodeo cowboys. And so it, it occurred to me 20 years ago that I could be the first person to do both. Oh, that's cool. And so uh, I'm slowing down, <laughs> but I've got a lot of these ideas of things that I could uh, publish. And one of them is to look at quite a number of African-American cowboys have risen to the top of the rodeo profession. But every December, they have the national finals rodeo out in Las Vegas. It used to be in Oklahoma City. I think it used to start being in Dallas, but it's been in uh, Las Vegas for years. And uh, this year, there's like four black cowboys who qualified. And you have seven rodeo events with 15 people. And so that's 125 or so people qualified to be at the NFR, the National Finals Rodeo. And have three, four, five black cowboys is the most you've had so far. But they keep coming along. And so eventually, you've got quite a number who have been quite successful. And do you see your work as being a corrective of some sort? Well, I think, you know, like you said, there's a whole lot of myths about the American West. And when I started graduate school, they said, you know, there's all kinds of falsehoods out there about the Civil War and the American West. Those are the two big areas that we need to clarify and set the record straight. So, you know, I think studying African-American cowboys and their contribution to the cattle industry and to the American West. And then, like I said, what do you do when you're an ex-cowboy, when you're too old to rope and ride anymore, you're still living. And so you had some homesteaders, you had some people who worked on the railroad, people who were miners, but most of these black cowboys had not married yet. And so once they get married and settle down, many of them become farmers and ranchers themselves. And then they ride off into the sunset. Right, and if I could throw in one more little tidbit, all the history books about the American West used to leave out African-Americans. Of course, yes. And all the African-American history books used to leave out the American West. Mm, interesting. And so you'd have the African-American history books would be about slavery, but then when you slavery is abolished, people start going north, and you have the Harlem Renaissance, and you have the Civil Rights Movement. It's all east of the Mississippi River. Most African-Americans stayed east of the Mississippi River, and went north, but some of them went west. And so you don't want to leave anybody out. Yeah. And so back in the 1980s, there was a group of people called the New Western Historians. And it is, we don't want to leave out any minority group. We don't want to leave out women. We want to tell a more full, complete, textured history of the American West than the myth that's been out there that most people are aware of, that there's truth to the myth, but there's also some gaps in it that need to be filled in. It's exciting to me. You know, it really is. I mean, once we finally turn this corner as a culture, where do you land? You land in a, in a much richer story, much more interesting and much truer to the real American nature, which is to, that we're all here in, in this together. Thank you very much, sir. Nice to meet you. Thank you. I enjoyed being here. 
When we come back, I'll be speaking with British historian Tony Warner about the portrayal of African-American life on the silver screen. 
big-time athletes, and it wasn't until later when the league is integrated that you suddenly find out who these people were. The same was true of black cinema. There was an entire other culture of cinema going on at the same time, which could only be shown in segregated movie theaters and places where black people saw them. And so you had these stars in that world from silence onward. It was amazing. Yeah, I think there's a film called The Crimson Skull. It's kind of Western with two black stars. In fact, because of segregation, you didn't have integrated casting there. So you actually have a couple of black stars and they're on the trail. Well, they meet a woman, have to go and find some gold, etc. But there's, as you were saying, there's like a whole story out there that has been preserved via film. But the thing is, people don't know those films exist in the first place. They have no idea there are actual films about black cowboys prior to the 1950s. Yeah, exactly. Well, and this is due to the Hayes Code, indirectly, I suppose, but also, of course, Jim Crow and segregation. I mean, these are the factors of life in the first half of the 20th century that affect all fronts of everything. But certainly in black cinema, you weren't going to be able to see black movie stars until Sidney Poitier comes along in the early 60s. It's That's right. And it reminds me because you mentioned the Hayes Code, and one of the films that kind of brought the Hayes Code, which is about not showing interracial relationships, was um, a film called The World, the Flesh, and the Devil, starring a guy called Harry Belafonte. <laughs> I think it comes out in like 59 or so. And basically, mm. the, the plot is that there's only three people left in the world. There's Belafonte, a white guy, and a white woman. And the question is, who's going to procreate with the white woman, right? And that's what yeah. it was all about. And at the time, it was really kind of radical and groundbreaking and kind of a bit controversial. But that was an example of the Hayes Code kind of beginning to be broken. And then after that, of course, you have Poitier and Belafonte combining to make a, a couple of Westerns. And one Western was Booking the Preacher, right? And that yeah. was about how they actually had people exoduses. And these were black people who were trying to escape from the Jim Crow era by moving west and what the sure. issues they had. So basically, in fact, it was a true story made into a drama, but people often watch that story and don't recognize it's actually reflecting real African-American history. Well, that's what was so groundbreaking about Belafonte and Poitier. I mean, Poitier directed that film. That was the first time a major black director had. So you can see him as the predecessor of all those great directors that come along, Van Peebles and then Spike Lee and all the rest. But you remind me again of another film that came out, I think it was 68, 69, and this starts about a guy called Jim Brown. Now, Jim yeah. Brown was in a, a Western movie called, what was it called, 100 Rifles. Yeah. And his love interest was Raquel Welch. There you go. Who at the time, she was like the most beautiful, most fantasized woman in the world. And he got to be in the movie with her and kiss her. So that was a really kind of a shock to the system. But again... Well, you're talking about something that's very important about film. And I would say especially American film because we're so widely distributed around the world. Really testing those boundaries that everyday life may not be encountering, you know, for most white people in America. America really remained fairly segregated right up until the 80s. I mean, it's incredible to imagine, but that's really true. And in many ways, it still is. And so movie theaters became that laboratory where artists could start pushing the envelopes and testing those bounds. And you can really credit films, television also. I'm thinking of Bridgerton, certainly, as one of those places where, you know, we're all getting in together, you know, in these storylines. And so it starts to become much more comfortable in the society. And you remind me again, there's a film that came out like two years ago. It was on Netflix and it starred Jonathan Majors. The harder they fall. Yeah, yeah. The thing is, in the film, right, they actually had references to real characters. So Nate Love was a real cowboy. And then, of course, yeah. they, got, they had Bass Reeves in it, right? And 
Bass Reeves is now meant to a TV streaming series starring David Oyelowo, right? Who's yeah, playing yeah. the real legendary cowboy Bass Reeves for the first time ever. Exactly. Well, it's happily normalized now, and that's a tribute to, I guess, movies. I guess the industry has finally turned the corner. For a long time, they were the source of the problem, giving in as they did to social mores of the day, the Hayes Code I'm talking about. But within the 20th century, certainly things turned around a bit. Tony, in your work, you use film in what way? I mean, how does it educate your audiences? All right, so we do walking tours for six years about um, black history in London's streets, but you can only get maybe 15, 20 people on a walk at a time. But in a cinema, you can get 400 people. So we yeah. show films once a month at a place called the British Film Institute on the South Bank, a massive 400 seat cinema. And we show films from the African diaspora, and we show a whole bunch of American films, obviously. And we show the films that are not part of the regular mainstream kind of um, distribution chain. So, for example, we show the film called The Great Debaters, starring Denzel Washington and Forrest Whitaker, produced by Oprah Winfrey. True story about black academic excellence. But that film was never released in cinemas here, so it never had the distribution here. So we show films like that because those films, for some reason, don't get the distribution they need. And there's a whole bunch of films for the 1920s, 40s, that have black stories or black characters in them that have not been shown. And that's what linked me into the whole kind of cowboy universe in that there's all these amazing stories that we've shown a few films about, so I know a little bit about cowboy history. Well, it's a real tribute to the storyline we've been discussing this entire episode, but that's what art is for, right? That's what, that's what it's supposed to do, break down the barriers between human beings. Thank God. Tony Warner established Black History Walks in 2007. Black History Walks explores the thousands of years of African-Caribbean history in London, and they take everybody on 15 guided walks, bus tours, river cruises, talks, and courses. I now know what I'm doing the next time I come to London. Thank you so much, Tony. You're welcome, man. See you soon. <laughs> Thank you for joining us on another episode of American History Hit. Please hit like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a nice review there. And if you'd like to make suggestions on any future subject matter, send us an email at ahh at historyhit.com. Thanks a lot. And we'll see you on the next new episodes dropping every Monday and Thursday. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to this episode of American History Hit. Please follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us, and you'll be doing us a big favor. Don't forget, you can also listen to all these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you'll also get your first three months for just $1 a month when you use code AmericanHistory at checkout.